Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 135, and we're going to discuss the not-controversial issue at all of Is Van Life a Felony? Uh, and yeah, it could be. We'll discuss. We're also going to talk about the Works Chainsaw that I've been using for a while, a place to visit that is a curious pilgrimage for everyone, and a resource recommendation for those of you with older vehicles who can't find glass. Hello everyone, welcome back. I had an episode planned for this week that was nice and tidy, and I knew exactly what I was going to say, and it was going to be wonderful, and I will actually do it next week, uh, but then I came across this, and now I have to talk about it. So, what I'm talking about is something you may have already heard of. It is a new law in Tennessee that basically makes it a felony to be in your van in a public area. Um, uh, it's, a, it's more complicated than that, but this is the first time I've heard of the act of parking in a place for too long is a felony punishable by up to six years in prison. Now, let me give you the scenario here. Tennessee rest areas have a policy of you may not stay there more than three hours. I believe that is the standard. And most of the rest areas are owned by the state. It's uh, under state law. And if you stay there for more than three hours, you are in violation. The way it is now, as of July 1st, is that violation is a felony. And you can be prosecuted and sentenced up to six years. Okay, that's the letter of the law, but it actually gets a little worse. Let's say you're driving through Tennessee and it's about one o'clock and you're in a rural part of Tennessee and oh look, there's a rest area. So, you know, hey, let's cook some lunch, right? So you open your slider door and you fire up your stove and you're cooking a can of soup and oh, guess what? You've just committed a felony. I mean, that is what the letter of the law says. You cannot stay for more than three hours, sleep, or cook in your vehicle. And of course, this applies to tents or anything else like that, too. This sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? I mean, why would they do this? And well, the answer, as you may have suspected, is it's to solve the homelessness problem. Well, let's back up a bit here. The homelessness problem exists everywhere there are people. There are homeless people everywhere. What's different is how people deal with it. Now, up in the Pacific Northwest and parts of California, you have people largely trying to deal with the homeless problem with kindness. That is to try to give them space, try to give them public assistance. I was in Portland recently and saw these little communities that were set up by the city for homeless people. And the result is that homeless people are very, very visible in these places. You, you see them everywhere. So the problem of homelessness is right in your face. And then there's the other approach, which is we're not going to have any homeless here. We're going to drive them out. And they make it extremely difficult to be homeless in those places. I know that in some places, park benches have spikes under them, so you can't possibly sleep there. And then places like now Tennessee have laws against being in a place that you don't own or isn't designated for camping or is a private space that you have permission to be in. Okay. 
Now, I live in Chicago, where we have a homeless problem, of course. Anybody driving through Chicago is going to find people on every street corner asking for money. Most underpasses have tents under them, and there are a few kind of places like next to the river and such where there are tent communities and for the most part everyone just knows that they're there and they don't pay it much attention and there are local groups that try to help these folks and then once in a while the police will come through and drive everybody off and then two weeks later they're all back which of these is the best solution well folks i do not have a solution for homelessness i don't uh, and I, I don't know that anybody does. I have not seen a good solution, and I think it's because the problem is so very complicated. The reasons people are homeless, the circumstances under which people find themselves homeless, and just the changing world we live in all contribute to this phenomenon, and there is no one good solution. So I'm not even going to address that. All I'm going to do here is say the homelessness problem is making van life more difficult. Now back to that Tennessee law. It has always been illegal to stay at a rest area for more than three hours in Tennessee. That's just their policy. And if you've listened to this podcast for a while, you've heard me say, who cares? Just do it anyway. I mean, that's my policy. I stay at a lot of rest areas because the type of travel I do often involves a lot of miles and not a lot of time in any one place. That makes rest areas kind of perfect. But am I breaking the law sometimes when I stay in rest areas? Well, yeah, I've stayed in rest areas in Tennessee longer than three hours. Florida, I remember, was even worse with some of their rest areas only being two hours. And I've even seen a one-hour rest area. And yeah, I've stayed longer at those. And I just assumed that if anyone knocked on the window, they would say, you've been here too long, go. And I would just go. And as it turns out, that's how the law is in Tennessee. They can't just notice that your van has been in the same spot for three hours and one minute and arrest you and then sentence you to six years. They have to give you 24 hours notice before arrest. So you basically get a notice and then you have 24 hours to leave. And then the prosecutor actually has to decide that your case is severe enough that they want to charge you with a felony. And in reality charging someone with a felony costs the state money, it costs time, it slows the courts down, and ultimately, are they going to decide that it's worth it or not? And so in the end, the people who are prosecuted under this are going to be the recalcitrant people who simply won't leave and are constantly in the view of the police. And for van life people that move around a lot, chances are it isn't going to affect us all that much. That doesn't mean we should be happy about it or even lackadaisical about it because this is going to ramp up, in my opinion. We're going to see more and more restrictions. To be clear, this Tennessee law isn't just about rest areas. It's about all public land. This is land that is owned by the public that is, in Tennessee, the state of Tennessee. On that land, unless it is designated a camping area, you are not allowed to sleep in your vehicle, even to take a nap. You are not allowed to cook in or near your vehicle. And yeah, it's a felony, not a misdemeanor, not a ticket if you get caught. So, so what do you do? My initial reaction to this when I found out about it was like, well, I'll just avoid Tennessee. 
Now, I live in Illinois, and avoiding Tennessee is actually a little hard. <laughs> if I ever want to go to the southeast United States, Tennessee is this really long, skinny state, and it kind of blocks my way, so I will be probably going through Tennessee again. Will I be spending the night in Tennessee? Uh, not by any plan. Uh, unless there's a reason for me to have a campground or something to stay in Tennessee, I will not be uh, trying to stay there. But I'll tell you this, and this is going to be blanketly true no matter where I am. If I feel that I'm too tired to drive and there's a rest area, I'm going to pull over in that rest area and I'm going to sleep there as long as I feel I need to, to be safe to drive. And if I do get that knock, I'm going to explain that to whoever's knocking. And if they insist that I leave, I probably will. But I think that whoever was doing the insisting was very foolish. Does that protect me legally? No. The law doesn't care. The law doesn't care if you've been driving for 40 hours and you need a nap. It, that isn't, they don't factor into that because all they're caring about is driving the homeless people out of the state. So I'll have links in the show notes to a few articles about this. You can read about it for yourself. Again, the upshot is it probably isn't going to affect you all that much, but it is a sign in this growing movement that van life is not legal. <laughs> I mean, th that's just kind of the saddest way to put it. We claim we live in a free society, but we really don't, not really at all. You are not free to get in your vehicle and drive anywhere you want and sleep anywhere you want, and you never were. And now you are less free to do so. And it would seem an easy solution to this would be like, well, I'll just buy a piece of land and then I can sleep there whenever I want. Well, no, you can't. <laughs> and I have a perfect example of that. We bought a piece of land on a river in north central Illinois. And it's four acres, it's wooded, it's out of the way, nobody can see us. It's, you know, I talk about it a lot in this podcast because I've been there so much lately. I am not allowed to sleep there in my Winnebago RV or in my van or in a tent or in a hammock or in anything else for more than a certain number of days a year. If I want to stay there over 199 days, I think it is, I have to have a house that is inspected and hooked up to utilities and I pay taxes on. Now, I'm paying taxes on the land. I'm paying thousands of dollars in property taxes on the land as it is, but that's still doesn't give me the right to sleep there. So, free? Am I free? No, I, I, I'm not free. And again, we're back to the who's going to know, how is this enforced? You know, yeah, okay, that's the law. They're not going to enforce it. And, uh, oh, you really have to be abusing the system in order to get prosecuted by this. And, well, yes, that is all true. And I've been watching videos about the Tennessee law, and there are van life people or nomadic people who are in favor of the law because they feel like it's going to be hardest on those who abuse the system, like those who set up massive campgrounds at Walmart or those who sleep in a rest area for three weeks they feel like this law is going to drive them out and make things easier for them i am not sure i agree with that because i think ultimately society is hostile to van life because we don't give society what it wants society wants you to have a job and a house and a fixed address and if you're on vacation society wants you to stay in a hotel or campground and pay those hotel and campground taxes it wants you to eat in restaurants and then it wants you to get out 
Van Life counters all of that. And that's glorious. That's one of the reasons we love Van Life because it is a total free a totally freeing experience to get out on the road and just be independent and do what you want. And that's becoming less and less. And you can see why the appeal of the West for van life is so large because there out in the wastes of Nevada, which aren't wastes out in the massive BLM lands of New Mexico, places like that, there's no one to bother you and you've got a two-week limit to basically do whatever you want on your own terms for now that's federally owned land and hmm, that can change little bit of a rant little bit of awareness campaign here it's a frustrating fact that we really aren't as free as we think we are and laws like this tennessee law that even if they're not going to be enforced are still there and are still there to be abused by law enforcement should they ever find a reason to abuse it. If they don't like the color of your van, they don't like you, well, this law might suddenly become more enforceable. Product review. <laughs> okay, switching modes here. It's not always easy. A long time ago now, geez, uh, I don't know how long ago now. Oh, maybe two months. That seems like a long time. I don't know. Anyway, I bought this chainsaw. <laughs> and you might think, okay, he's really getting off the track here. We have stopped talking about van life at all. But but no, no, hear me out. Um, I watch a lot of Forresty Forest. I've mentioned that several times. And Forresty Forest has a chainsaw in his van. And I thought, well, that's a bit extravagant. But he's up in the Pacific northwest of Canada most of the time. He has trees down in the road in front of him. He has to cut up. I was like, oh, okay, okay, that makes sense. But then I started to see which chainsaw he was using. He was using a battery-powered chainsaw. That means he didn't have to have any gas or oil. He just charged his batteries in the van, and then he was always ready to go. And I thought, well, geez, chainsaws use an awful lot of power. I mean, my volunteering with Team Rubicon, I see a lot of chainsaws being used. I know how much fuel they use, and I thought, yeah, how much could a battery-powered chainsaw do? And then I bought one. Now, the one I bought was a Works W-O-R-X. It's a 40-volt chainsaw. It takes two batteries at once, actually. Works has a standard 20-volt battery, and since I already had a circular saw that used those, I figured, well, I will just get that same system and keep with the same batteries, which is a good plan until they don't have the implement you need, and then you end up with another battery system, and I now am using four different battery systems. That's beside the point. But this chainsaw, and I'm not really recommending this specific chainsaw as much as battery-powered chainsaws in general, has been great now, if you have space in the garage of your van, consider carrying a chainsaw, because if you're the kind of person who's spending a lot of time outdoors in the wilderness, like you have campfires every night, this thing's going to save you a ton of time, because you can just find a dead branch, and instead of hacking away at it with a hatchet or maybe using a bow saw, you can just go... and cut exactly the right size logs that you need in minutes and the capacity of the batteries at least for the one i have here is great i mean i can cut down several trees before needing to change batteries which is actually what i've done and then buck and limb those trees which is limbing is you cut off the limbs and bucking is cutting them into small pieces i can do that too i mean basically i could take down three 
six-inch diameter trees, buck and limb them on one charge of the batteries. And that's certainly more than you're going to need to do just to have a campfire. So, hey, just consider this. This is an option you have. If you have space and you have a need, a battery-powered chainsaw makes a lot of sense for van life. Now, there's one thing to know about chainsaws. Even a battery-powered chainsaw does use oil. Oil is injected onto the chain as the chain goes around the bar. And you need to have this one thing filled with oil. But it's not very much. You're not going to have any problem storing the oil or anything like that. The problem is that that oil leaks out when the chainsaw is in storage. So you're going to want to put it in a cardboard box or something like that so that the little drips of oil are absorbed. Not the end of the world, but just something to be aware of. Now, these are made by many different brands, by Steel and Ryobi, and the one I have, I said, is Works. The model I got is called the WG384. That is a 40-volt model. It's at the 14-inch bar, which is a pretty good size, and it comes with two batteries and a charger. Now, all that stuff is actually kind of expensive. It's $269. But I bought this not so much for the van as for using on my property. For just van life, you can spend half that and get a 10-inch bar one, or they even have these little handheld ones that are kind of like chainsaw scissors. <laughs> they're a little hard to explain unless you've seen them, but they're designed basically for people who are afraid of chainsaws. Works makes one, it's called the WG324. It's only 20 volts, so it uses only one battery, and it's only a five-inch blade, so it would be for chopping up small things. Like, you could have a two-inch branch and cut it up with this pretty easy, and it's tiny. I mean, it's the size of a power drill. It's, it's really not a big deal. All these things charge at 110 volts, so you will need an inverter to charge the batteries. I have not found too many that have 12-volt battery chargers because you can see the problem. You're trying to charge a 20-volt DC battery, all, deep, all batteries are DC, with a 12-volt source. It can be done, but it's a little tricky. So, think about it. Battery-powered chainsaw for your rig, it might be a good thing. Tales from the road. So this recent law with Tennessee got me thinking, and it's funny how the tales I choose each week are somehow related, at least in my head, to the other things I've been talking about. In this case, I would like to talk about an experience I had in the Tiki Bago that kind of illustrates the point that society is, is hostile to quote-unquote van life, which is, you know, is that what I was doing in the Tiki Bago? Uh, you decide. So... Backing up a few steps, the Tiki Bago is a 1972 Winnebago Indian, which is one of the classic Winnebago RVs that my wife and I bought in Oregon. And the person who owned it before us had turned it into a tiki shack. It's all done up in tiki. All the inside is done in grass, and there's all these tiki decorations, and we love it. But it's old. It's 50 years old, and, you know, it looks old. It looks pretty good. I mean, it's all been painted, and it's in good shape, but if you see this thing, you're like, uh, what's up with that? Because that's not the right colors for Winnebago, and it kind of looks like the kind of vehicle that somebody would park on the side of the road and then live in and never move. See my talk earlier in this episode. Well, it did move, and I drove it all the way from Oregon to Illinois with numerous adventures along the way. But before I even got started, I had to stop at Walmart. I mean, I flew to Oregon, picked up the thing. I didn't have any food, didn't even have clothes and stuff. I just had a basically a little bag. And I went to Walmart in 
Grant's Pass, where I bought the Tiki Bago, and didn't think too much about it. I, ju I just pulled in and parked, and it's a fairly big rig, so I parked away from the door, and I just stopped. And before I went into the store, I started to take inventory of how much storage I had and take, making a list of things I needed, things like that. Nothing too shocking. But as I was getting ready to leave the Tiki Bago, I noticed this old Toyota Corolla with a yellow light flashing on its roof, kind of driving around the Tiki Bago. He made one pass and then two and then parked in a spot three spots away facing the front of the vehicle. And I'm observing this thinking, this has got to be some kind of like parking lot security or something. And he's just tagged me as somebody who's going to be a problem. But I'm not a problem. I'm a customer. So I get out of the Tiki Bago and I lock up the doors and find out the door lock doesn't work. Another story. And then walk around the Tiki Bago in a 360 to make sure there's nothing wrong, there aren't any doors open and stuff, and then go into Walmart. And as I'm walking into Walmart, the car follows me. Now, I'm you know, walking down the parking lot and this guy's just kind of maybe 100 feet behind me creeping along. And it was kind of like an intimidation tactic. It was like, I know you're there. And, you know, I'm just shopping in the store. So I go into Walmart and buy like three or four hundred dollars worth of stuff. I mean, I needed bedding and pots and pans. I basically needed to outfit this thing to live in for the next week. And I come out and he's parked over by the Tiki Bago again. And he starts writing stuff down. And it's like... Uh, okay, I feel really unwelcome here. And this was a Walmart that had other RVs in it and did not have any no parking signs. And I had no intention of sleeping there for the night. Uh, that was not my plan at all. But because of the way my rig looked, I was targeted. And I imagine it's like that for a lot of folks with older vans or vans that have some rust or body damage or whatever. There are just people out there looking for them. And then they're a target and they must be dealt with. Now, in my case, I loaded up all my stuff and I took my sweet time putting that stuff away. The guy watched me the entire time. And then as I drove out, I made a point to drive very close, but safely to his vehicle. And I waved at him and beeped the horn twice and left. Eh, little passive aggressive thing, I suppose. But, you know, it didn't make me feel too comfortable, and I was just about to start a 3,000-mile drive in this thing. Now, as it happened, I spent the night at a rest area, and it was about 10 miles away from the Walmart, and it was fine. It was like every rest area experience I've ever had. Nobody messed with me. I was totally left alone, and it was fine. I woke up early in the morning and started driving over, over the big hill. If, you're, if you look at eastern Oregon, there are mountains to get over to go to the western part. And right at the top of those mountains, I lost a couple of belts. My water pump seized. The vehicle was dead. And I limped into a rather very large parking lot of a gas station that was closed just to get off the road. Called AAA. I've told the story. It's a whole separate thing. AAA was coming. It's fine. But I had to have my vehicle in the parking lot of this gas station for several hours. And having had the experience that I just had in Walmart, I was a little paranoid about it. So the moment the gas station opened, I went in and explained, Hey guys, I'm sorry about the big RV in the parking lot. I'm broken down. Help is coming. I'll get it out of here as soon as possible. And they couldn't have been nicer. They're like, oh, that's no problem. Stay as long as you want. It's fine. And, 
you know, I'm like, well, that's very nice. Great. Now, what's the difference in the reactions? Well, one is a personal interaction. I had a personal interaction with them. They knew my intent. They knew what I was doing there. And they saw me that, you know, I was, I bought some coffee and stuff there. So that they knew I had money and that I wasn't quote unquote homeless. I was dressed like I had just had a bath, you know, and it gave me enough privilege that they weren't going to bother me. But I, I can't help but think that if I were just working on the van and was all greasy and grimy and walked in there, I might've gotten a different response. I don't really know. The point of this story is that we are kind of outlaws out there. Uh, we're always going to have to have our wits about us and always be cognizant of how we're seen. And uh, this is more true the more closer to an urban area you are. And uh, so far, I haven't had any real problems, and I count myself fortunate. But I imagine if I spend enough time on the road, eventually one of those real problems is going to happen. And, uh, well... I, I regret that, and I regret that for others who have already had it happen to them. A place to visit. I may have talked about this before. If I haven't, I have been remiss. But it has come up in the Discord channel I have for... Not the, not the built to go Discord channel, the other one I have for the trips I do. And uh, I figured, hey, it's time that if you haven't been to this place, this might be a good time to do it. There are three curious pilgrimages in the U.S. that I think every curious person should experience. First of those is the City Museum in St. Louis. The second of those is Meow Wolf in Denver, and I believe there's one in Vegas now, too. I can't speak to Denver and Vegas, but if they're anything like the one in Santa Fe, yes, you must go. And there's the third and the oldest of this triumvirate, and that is House on the Rock in Spring Green, Wisconsin. House on the Rock is quote-unquote a tourist trap. I talked about one of these last week. This one is in that same vein. But it is perhaps the king of all tourist traps. And it takes an entire day to experience. And the proper word is experience. This is one of those places where you don't want to know too much before you go. You just want to know that you're going to spend many hours walking and you're going to be confused and you're going to want to have sugar because your brain is going to use up every little bit of glucose it has. House on the Rock started, there's a, all right, I'll tell you the legend. This isn't actually true, but I'll tell it to you. There was a, an architect and he loved Frank Lloyd Wright and he told Frank Lloyd Wright about this project he wanted to do and Frank Lloyd Wright laughed at him and so he said, well, I'll just do it anyway. And the project was to build a house on a rock, which was a pinnacle. And, you know, it was like kind of a very strange thing. Just build this, like it was a spire of rock. He was going to build a house on top of it. And well, he did, <laughs> hence the name House on the Rock. The house exists. And it's a very strange house, and I don't believe anyone ever lived there, but after he built it, he decided that there was so much interest in it, he'd, there was so much interest in it, he'd charge 50 cents for people to come see it. And so he did, and more and more people came, and then he added a snack bar, and on and on and on. And he ended up building a complex that can only be described as a museum of museums. And some of those are art museums, and some of them are history museums, and some of them are just very, very odd. 
Now, when you go to this place, and you should, go to all of the areas. They, I, last time I was there, they sold tickets. Like, you could just see the house, and you could just see the house and something else. No, 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 no. You have to see everything. You do. It is going to take you all day. You are going to want to find a place to stay in the area. You go to the house first. That's a strange enough experience. And then you're going to go to the other areas. And all I can tell you is that a lot of what you see isn't real. Some of it is. The two are blended together. And even some of the stuff that looks like it's broken is by intent. And you are going to see things that just make you say, why? And they're things on a grand scale. I mean, sure, there are cases with objects, but there are also rooms with objects. And some of those rooms have objects that appear to be bigger than the room they're in. Again, I don't want to tell you too much because this is an experience. It's something you have to have happen to you. <laughs> but do it. Do it. Add this to your bucket list as a pilgrimage. You have to go to House on the Rock. And when you do this experience, do not use any pharmaceuticals that, if you can help it. I, this is kind of a surreal experience, and so some people want to enhance the experience with some drugs or something. No, no, no. You're going to have enough trouble trying to figure out reality from what isn't real. Uh, don't enhance that. <laughs> At least the first time, just experience it the way it is. There is food in the middle, so you won't starve to death. Uh, and at the end, there is like a candy shop, which is appropriate because a, a fellow podcaster of much greater renown, George Schraub, and I did this together and we both had the same comment at the end you really want sugar at the end because your brain has used it all so i'll have links in the show notes it's only open in summer months so don't try to go there in the winter but house on the rock is a pilgrimage place it will change the way you see things and sometimes that's a really really good thing Resource recommendation. Hey, I cut one in this week because I didn't ramble on as long as last week. This is a good resource for a very specific group of people. If you have an older RV or an older van and you have a broken window, it can be really hard to find a replacement because, you know, glass companies only stock what they can sell. And, well, they really don't sell too many windshields for a 1967 Corvair van. They just don't. But there are companies that will make glass for such vehicles, and I'm going to tell you about one. Now, this is one in Downers Grove, Illinois. It's fairly near me. That's why I'm choosing them. I've never used them, and I don't know that much about them. But they exist, and that should give some of you hope. And all you really have to do is either bring in a broken piece of glass or bring in the vehicle, and they can make windshields for you. They can make windows, and they can make mirrors, which is something people don't think about. If you break a mirror, how do you get a replacement? Well, they can replace just the glass rather than the whole mirror, meaning you don't have to scrounge through junkyards for the rest of your life looking for that one particular mirror that only existed on on one model of one car one year. If you are in a circumstance where you cannot find glass for your vehicle, take a look at Commercial Car and Glass Company, Inc. Now, they have a really long URL. I'll have a link in the show notes. Downersgroveautoandglassrepair.com 
and then they have a special section for antique car auto glass. They can do glass for anything, so they claim. Older vehicles, trucks, car mirrors, vintage, antique, they don't care. They will replace door glass. They'll do custom front windshields and custom back windshields. That's the big deal. That's really hard to find. And I don't know how much it'll cost. It won't be cheap, probably, but it can be done. And, you know, let's face it. If you've got a custom vehicle that's in great shape with a broken windshield, you're out of service until you can get that fixed. So... I will have a link in the show notes and search in your area. A good term to search for is antique car auto glass. That tends to be the right kind of people to find old glass for old vehicles. Well, folks, thanks very much for listening to episode 135. Next week, we will talk about the advantages of small vans versus large vans and vice versa because somebody requested it. And it's amazing. If you request something, you just might get it. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And until next time, remember the words of George Orwell. Freedom is the right to tell people what they do not want to hear.